Hello, and welcome to the CJPME Debrief Podcast, a project of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, and a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. Together, we discuss developments and issues in Canada's relationship with Palestine and the broader Middle East. Through our conversations, we make sense of events in the region and how people in Canada can respond. What and who are the main drivers of anti-Muslim hate in Canada? On this episode, we'll be joined by Jasmine Zeen, author of a new report on the Canadian Islamophobia industry. We talk about some of the key organizations, personalities, and discourses responsible for perpetuating anti-Muslim hate in Canada, and how the connections between them form an ecosystem of hate. As part of this discussion, we'll look at the role of certain fringe right, pro-Israel, and anti-Palestinian voices in spreading Islamophobic views. My name is Michael Buchert, Vice President of CJPME, and the podcast host for today. With me is Tom Woodley, CJPME President, and our podcast co-host. Good afternoon, Tom. Hey, Michael. Great to be here with you again, and really looking forward to our conversation with Ms. Zine. And we are very honored to have Jasmine Zine return to the podcast. Uh, Jasmine is Professor of Sociology, Religion, and Culture at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University, and the author of this new report, the Canadian Islamophobia Industry, Mapping Islamophobia's Ecosystem in the Great White North. The report was done in partnership with the Islamophobia Studies Center in Berkeley, California. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So we had you on uh, recently uh, to talk about your, also you have a new book on Islamophobia in Canada and the uh, 9-11 generation. And in a way, this report seems like a follow-up on some of those themes and to get, you know, for those who are interested in a more detailed discussion of what Islamophobia is, uh, they can listen to our previous episode on that. Uh, but today we did want to dig into this new report. Can you start by saying a little bit about why you decided to write this report and what it sets out to do? Yeah, thank you for, for asking that. You know, uh, we started this study uh, about four years ago, and by we, I mean myself and a team of graduate students at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, we were in initially asked to put together some fact sheets about Islamophobia in Canada for the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University that has been compiling um, fact sheets and profiles of different Islamophobia purveyors uh, generally in the United States, much like what the Southern Poverty Law Center does, for example, and what the Canadian Anti-Hate Network uh, has been doing in Canada as well. So they wanted to, uh, to look at Islamophobia in Canada, particularly in the aftermath of the Quebec mosque attack in um, 2017. So they came to me and my team of graduate students put together about 12 fact sheets on Islamophobia in Canada and particular players. I think they were looking at Faith Goldie and um, Kevin Johnston, um, you know, as well as, you know, people like Tariq Fatah um, and looking at, uh, you know, different policies and practices in Canada that uh, reproduce uh, Islamophobia and create this climate, you know, for Islamophobic animus to be um, purveyed. And so when we started doing that, we started to realize that we were actually seeing something, um, you know, more integrated starting to, to appear in terms of how many of these um, groups and individuals, what I would call Islamophobia influencers and so on, were created. So we started to kind of do a mapping uh, and uh, which was, you know, in initially very crude and just post-it notes on a wall. And that eventually uh, emerged into uh, what we did as a kind of social network analysis and um and so that's kind of where it began, because we realized that, you know, aside from the sort of traditional things that you would look at when you talk about Islamophobia, like, you know, hate crimes or, uh, you know, even um, public opinion polls and so on. And all of that is in the report as sort of the backdrop. Um, there was something else that had begun to emerge, which was, you know, an alliance between various often disparate groups that were coming together to uh, as part of a network to um, promote Islamophobic ideologies and propaganda and various kinds of campaigns. And so that's how mm. this project began. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's really interesting to see all of these connections. Um, I want to talk a bit about defining the Islamophobia industry, as you call it. 
Uh, and so maybe I'll just read from uh, the abstract of your of your report. You define the industry. Um, it's comprised of media outlets, political figures, far-right white nationalist groups, Islamophobia influencers and ideologues, pro-Israel fringe right groups, Muslim dissidents, think tanks, security experts, and the donors who fund their campaigns. These individuals, groups, and institutions comprise a network that supports and engages in activities that demonize and marginalize Islam and Muslims in Canada. So that's quite an encompassing framework. Uh, it brings together a lot of different players. And, you know, we know that a lot of these are all active in the very different ways. But what does it add when we think of them uh, sort of as connected in terms of an industry? So what I think is unique about Islamophobia and that what we wanted to emphasize in this report is that Islamophobia is organized, orchestrated, networked, and funded. And so this report details and highlights Islamophobia as a kind of ecosystem within which specific actors are engaged in like coordinated campaigns to spread Islamophobic ideologies and conspiracy theories. And they also work in concert to malign Muslim organizations as alleged fronts for Hamas or the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and, you know, what was significant, I think, about our uh, report on the Canadian Islamophobia industry is that we were building on work that had been done already in the United States. Nathan Lean wrote a book on the Islamophobia industry back in 2012, which was updated in 2017. And there have been some excellent reports doing this kind of mapping in the U.S. And that's where the term Islamophobia industry was coined through through that work. <clears throat> and so um, we use that same language uh, to look at the kinds of networks that uh, were coming together in Canada. So this is the first of its kind uh, examination of these networks, uh, you know, in Canada. And we were able to add to the work done in the United States by bringing in other players that hadn't been brought into the U.S. studies. For example, um, the far right, what we call the foot soldiers of Islamophobia, far right groups, white nationalist groups were not part of um, the networks identified in the United States. No doubt they played a role, but they were not brought into that analysis. And also the role of, of uh, think tanks and you know security experts who also um, promote uh, ideas of, uh, you know, Muslims as a threat uh, to public safety and to the nation and so on. And so all of these kind of diverse groups and actors coming together, uh, you know, form this industry also in the way that uh, anti-Muslim bigotry has become monetized and mm -hmm. is bankrolled. And so you almost have now professional Islamophobe, uh, Islamophobia um, propagators, because mm -hmm. many of these groups and organizations do this 24-7. So I think that's what's um, significant about this study and, you know, really is the takeaway, I think, in terms of understanding how <clears throat> Islamophobia is unique in the sense that it is part of an orchestrated and organized network. Yeah, I I mean that's that's sort of the scary thing that there are these networks of funding that you talk about in your report and and how truly you know I used to think of it as oh well this person just has happens to have a an axe to grind with with such and such or this person happens to have, you know have was the have a bee under their bonnet on this issue uh, but to actually learn that no it's actually sort of being funded and propagated and it's it's not by chance that these these different these different things are happening, and it's not by chance that some of the same terms are being used. Um, you your report describes the process of the getting back to the mapping and, and the work of your you, you and your team. Uh, your report actually describes the process of mapping out the the network as a type of whack a mole. Uh, how 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 do, what do you mean by that in terms of the, the mapping of the of the whole thing? Well, I think you know. It had the, the term of uh, this process being like playing a game of whack-a-mole was more about how we're combating Islamophobia and the process of doing this, this mapping, you know, we are doing it for the purpose of identifying, you know, different um, threats to uh, how, um, you know, Muslims are being perceived and uh, ideas are being, you know, circulated and stereotypes and so on. So, you know, in that sense, combating Islamophobia is like playing a game of whack-a-mole because each time we would challenge one problem, you know, another one pops up. 
Mm-hmm. And this cycle continues, right? So as we worked on this report, you know, my research team and I went down hundreds of rabbit holes investigating so many different Islamophobic groups, organizations, and individuals. And each one led us to another because yeah. we were documenting the connections between them. Because as you said, you know, Thomas, a lot of people will, you know, know of one or two of these people and think that they're kind of just an individual person over here that has an axe to grind. But when you start to look at the connections between them, you know, there's quite a tangled web. Um, And so it was a um, formidable challenge trying to figure out even when to stop investigating Um, Because even since I finished this report, new information has popped up and came to light that I wish I could have included. And so, you know, just as we sort of close the door on one thing, another one, you know, is open somewhere else. And so it's a seemingly never ending challenge to try and combat the multiple fronts upon which um, anti-Muslim racism is being waged. Yeah. And so that's why the game of whack-a-mole, you know, uh, seemed like an appropriate kind of uh, metaphor to talk about this process. Right, right. And I guess we probably should have explained that for listeners that haven't been to a carnival fair given the pandemic. But it's the, there's that game in the carnival fair where this this thing sort of pops up and you're supposed to hit it with a hammer and then it, another one pops up and so on. So that's the that's the metaphor that we're talking about for those that may be unfamiliar. Um, you know, I first I first sort of was I think made aware of Islamophobia when when we would uh, when we were doing some uh, work on Parliament Hill, and and we talked to people and they'd say yeah but such and such is trying to promote Sharia law and it's like who's who's trying to promote Sharia law who's you know, I've never met anyone and and you know and I think that's something that comes across in your report that yeah these these ideas actually are sort of fed into the system almost they're they're like fed into the industry and then the industry sort of propagates them uh but some of the there's several that you come up to come up uh that you mention in your uh in your report uh these various myths and the various i I guess tags the islamist bogeyman the muslims as a fifth column uh muslims waging a civilizational jihad uh creeping sharia law muslim invaders islamo fascists um do you want to speak to these ideas and and why Muslims and how Muslims are so often portrayed as a threat to Canadian society? Sure. Thank you for that question. And for your example about Sharia, it's interesting to me because, you know, if people really understood Sharia, you know, the act of actually, you know, smiling at someone or being kind towards others is an act of Sharia, right? So right. the fact that it's so often conflated with, right. you know, all of these kinds of you know, sorts of uh, Islamophobic angst and anxiety and so on is also, uh, you know, a product of how people really don't understand what the term means. Yeah. But nonetheless, it is it's, you know, instrumentally leveraged to uh, to demonize Muslims. So, yeah, you know, these um, conspiracy theories and tropes and ideologies that you uh, mentioned that are detailed and documented and sort of <clears throat> a bit of a genealogy of these are provided in the report are actually not unique to Canada. Um, they're part of Islamophobia's global mythologies. So, for example, the Great Replacement Theory is one mm-hmm. that we're hearing more about, right? And that warns of a white genocide. Um, those ideas are widely circulated by white nationalist groups and have been galvanized by specifically anti-Muslim demographic fears that have been circulated, um, you know, fairly ubiquitously in Europe, but you can also find them in India and China, for example. Um, and so these ideas were also evident in the manifestos of, for example, the New Zealand, uh, Christchurch, New Zealand shooter. And also, um, you know, Alexander Bissonnette, the shooter in the Quebec mosque uh, attack in 2017, also cited fears of Muslim refugees invading Canada. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these ideas, you know, are are, um, you know, unfortunately thriving within uh, a lot of not just the far right um, white nationalist sectors, but all sectors of the Islamophobia industry who are leveraging, you know, different um, uh, conspiracy theories and um, discourses. And, you know, even when it comes to demographic replacement ideas or even the civilizational jihad, which is sort of intertwined uh, with that, we saw these ideas in Canadian media um, through uh, Mark Stein's uh, McLean's article back in 2007. 
that argued while Western societies were in a demographic decline, there was a growing young Muslim population poised to rise up and wage jihad. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, these discourses um, are, you know, have been around for a while, are sort of globally being mobilized for, you know, different kinds of ethno national political goals and uh, other, uh, you know, kinds of aims. And they are drawing upon the Muslim, uh, you know, folk devil to, um, you know, to uh, animate all of these particular narratives. And they also um, center around challenges that depict Islam as posing a threat to Western Judeo-Christian values and democracies, you know, for example. Um, But a central trope to the Islamic conspiracy, Islamophobic conspiracy theories is the Islamist boogeyman. And, you know, that's the idea that Muslims are waging a global stealth campaign to take over Western societies, impose Sharia law, and ultimately install a global caliphate system. And this, you know, conspiracy theory relies on uh, interrelated tropes that Muslims are a Trojan horse or a fifth column, you know, kind of like wolves in sheep's clothing who are using deception or taqiyya to achieve, you know, these nefarious aims. So that's sort of how those conspiracy theory theories go. And it was very troubling to see how these Islamophobic ideologies and, and conspiracy theories were being reproduced and echoed and amplified by Canadian Islamophobia actors. So we were able to um, identify several of them and how they're leveraged uh, within Canada. And, you know, as I've said, I think... Uh, since 9-11, Muslims have been construed as the new folk devils uh, around which, I mean, actually not just since 9-11, it has a longer history. But if we just look at this, you know, um, uh, more recent history, um, you know, the Muslim folk devil is this site where moral panics are being galvanized. And players in the Islamophobia industry have been able to monetize this bigotry in ways that, as I've mentioned, Islamophobia becomes essentially professionalized. And so we're seeing it, um, these ideas circulating with a great deal of impunity through disinformation campaigns on social media, um, through their various websites and platforms, um, you know, and um, even through, you know, swag that they have, iconography and things that they are promoting are uh, ways in which these ideas are are being communicated. Yeah. Yeah, maybe... um... Just on 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 that point, you know, you mentioned about you mentioned that article from two thousand and seven, uh, where someone was talking about sort of the, the, the supposed Islamic threat. Um, I know that there was a wave of of Islamophobia after nine eleven, uh, but I also have sort of sense a, a wave of Islamophobia that sort of started in the in the twenty tens, like really a, an intense wave. And would you tie that? Would you th- tie that specifically to uh, to you know, because a lot of the examples that you mentioned and the funding and the networking and so on is through social media. And is is has has social media, especially you know, platforms like Facebook, have they sort of energized or provided the plumbing for the Islamophobia industry, or how how do you see that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that you know, social media uh, and its proliferation has allowed. Uh, many incubators for these particular kinds of, um, you know, groups to, uh, you know, to foment these ideas and conspiracy theories, share them among each other and circulate them very, very widely. Uh, and it's interesting that you mentioned 2010, because in the U.S., when they talk about sort of the genesis of the Islamophobia industry there, it's actually in that period that they are, yeah. are trying to, uh, you know, pinpoint it to. And there are always certain, you know, uh, controversies that come up that are used as an opportunity to um, reignite that, um, you know, uh, those campaigns. So, yes, I think that, well, uh, social media has been used very widely uh, for the disinformation campaigns. Um, You know, we talk about that in the report uh, quite a bit as well. And, you know, a lot of media outlets that are, you know, purveying far-right ideologies also uh, have come together to support uh, the circulation of those mm-hmm. narratives. And then there's always flashpoint issues that are used and these groups can come together. And I think that's how a lot of them started, you know, actually organizing mm-hmm. was around particular kinds of flashpoints. And we've seen that, I think, the most most prominently recently with Motion 103, 
which right. was tabled by a liberal MP Khalid in the wake of the um, Quebec mosque attack. And, you know, the way that groups came around, uh, you know, organized to challenge that motion, which was about addressing Islamophobia and combating it and recognizing it. Well, just the terminology of Islamophobia being used was a huge, um, you know, flashpoint for these groups. I remember. Uh, Yeah, because they were, you know, trying to say that this did not allow any criticism of Islam or free speech and so on. And as we know, many of these groups use the term free speech instrumentally, but also selectively because it never applies to, you know, their own silencing and suppression of uh, the free speech of others. So you're right. I think that um, all of those, you know, factors around the proliferation of social media, the internet, um, and the kinds of um, groups that are organizing using um, social media and, uh, you know, various, you know, chat rooms and various websites and all of those media platforms um, are really where these ideas have been able to circulate globally. Yeah. Well, maybe now's a good time to start going through some of the key players in this industry. Uh, you've already mentioned that, you know, one of the key aspects of thinking about this as an industry is to show how Islamophobia is not just, you know, hateful attitudes that someone might hold, but that these are sentiments and hate campaigns that are well-funded and well-organized. And your report describes several key organizations like the Gatestone Institute, the Middle East Forum, and the Clarion Project, which fund these campaigns. Uh, and they're all American organizations, it seems, and they also also... Uh, happen to have a pro-Israel aspect to them as well. Can you tell us a bit about these organizations and their role in the industry in Canada? Yeah, I think, you know, um, we did want to talk about what we knew about funding um, uh, and the bankrolling of bigotry around uh, anti-Muslim racism. And most of that work identifying this sort of money trail has been done really effectively and well by um, organizations and scholars in the United States. Um, Particularly, uh, the Council on American Islamic Relations did a wonderful report called Hijacked by Hate. And they um, identified that there was a $1.5 billion, uh, you know, industry promoting Islamophobia in the United States um, through Uh, philanthropic organizations and so on that were channeling funds to about 39 uh, groups that were known to be purveying, you know, anti-Muslim hate. Now, we don't know about the money that comes into Canada, but we do know that there are ties between Canadian players and these U.S.-based donor organizations. So we were not able to do the same kind of mapping of you know, uh, sort of the forensic accounting that was done in the United States, because we don't have access to the kind of documents that allow that um, kind of investigation. But what we were able to find were some of the links between some of these groups. So, for example, um, the Gatestone Institute is a far right American think tank that was founded in 2008 by Nina Rosenwald, who is the heiress to the Sears Roebuck fortune. And she's been referred to as the sugar mama of anti-Muslim hate and has used her wealth to forge alliances between the American pro-Israel lobby and the anti-Muslim network in the United States. Then you also have the Clarion Project, which was founded in 2006 by Raphael Shore, who's a Canadian-Israeli film producer. Excuse me. And that was one of the central organizations in the U.S. Islamophobia industry that and it operates as a nonprofit organization that educates the public about the dangers of radical Islam. So they produced, uh, you know, the film uh, Obsession, Radical Islam's War Against the West that was very promoted in very problematic ways, which I detail in the, the report. And they also have <clears throat> attached to their advisory board well-known anti-Muslim figures like Daniel Pipes and, and uh, Frank Gaffney, for example. Um, and so they have links with, with um, you know, with some Canadian players as well, uh, as does the Gatestone Institute. Uh, and then you have the Shulman Foundation, which was noted as one of the um, funders of the 39 Islamophobia Network groups that were identified in CARE's report. And they're also a major donor to uh, David Horowitz Freedom Center, which is a, you know, kind of ground zero for a lot of that anti-Muslim propaganda in the United States. 
Um, and I, what is significant about them in relation to Canada is that they actually funded um, the Indus, uh, sorry, the English Defence League and white nationalist um, activist, uh, anti-Muslim activist Tommy Robinson. Um, they funded his internship at Rebel Media. So that was one uh, way that we saw some of that, um, you know, money flowing into support anti-Muslim activism in Canada. And then, of course, you have the Middle East Forum. And that is the organization that was founded by Daniel Pipes, who has been referred to as the grandfather of Islamophobia in the U.S., as sort of a key figure in that industry. And, um, you know, some of the U.S. studies were able to show that the tax records revealed that um, Muslim, sorry, the Middle East Forum receives the majority of its funding from Gatestone. And so there's a close ideological alignment and economic exchange between these organizations that strengthens their ties and provides the economic and political currency underwriting their Islamophobic missions. And so, you know, in the report, we detail the connections between some of these groups and certain players in Canada. I can say that the Middle East Forum was a funder for Canadians for the Rule of Law conference, which I also talk about in this report and which I attended, that was purveying a lot of, um, uh, you know, ideologies about that I've talked about the, you know, sort of Muslim invaders, Trojan horse, the idea that, you know, uh, Muslim politicians too were, were suspect, um, and even ideas that the New Zealand um, mosque shooting happened because that mosque was a known site of radicalization. So these were some of the ideas being, you know, uh, Muslim charity. There was a whole session on Muslim charities as fronts for Hamas and so on. Um, and later on, they sent an email, you know, saying that the Middle East Forum was a sponsor um, for that event. So we know that um, some of the Alliances are being forged north and south of the border, and in fact, also transnationally, as I point out in, in certain places in the report as well. Um, so, you know, we can see how uh, a lot of this hate is being funded and monetized, you know, and it's also coming through um, how a lot of these individual Islamophobia influencers, as I call them, right, have their own social media, um, and they have their platforms on, you know, YouTube and elsewhere. So they can, you know, get a lot of traction that way. And that helps monetize. So they have been deplatformed some of them on these social media sites, which is, you know, helpful for stemming that that kind of funding that they're getting. But at the end of the day, you know, um, Islamophobia can be profitable. And I think this is part of the appeal for a number of um people who are also ideologically motivated to promote it, but also are finding, you know, some net benefit in that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's just so much to say on this. Um, I, I want to move uh, now to talk a little bit about uh, Rebel Rebel Media, Rebel News, formerly Rebel Media. Uh, you know, we, we uh, several years ago, we had to launch a defamation suit uh, against them. And to your point about sort of making money in addition, of course, Rebel, Me Rebel, Rebel News has actually mentioned your report a number of times. Uh, you talk a little bit about the funding that they've received to actually do some of the anti-Muslim work that they've been doing. Um, and in, 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 as part of sort of their, their attack on us that we had to then sue them for defamation for, literally they were you know, just as one example, of course, in our case, they weren't, uh, it wasn't sort of, there wasn't an Islamophobic angle to this, but in any case, they, they, part of their campaign against us was to say, well, we want to launch a lawsuit against CJPME, donate here, you know, donate and yeah. you'll fund our, our legal suit against CJPME. So to your point, you know, this is, this can be very lucrative and they, and they milk it for that. But why don't we talk about, uh, rebel media? And uh, you talk about the report talks about as being a primary hub for purveying anti-Muslim rhetoric and ideologies. Uh, how has Rebel actually played this role? Well, you know, um, Rebel has birthed many Islamophobia influencers like Faith Goldie and Lauren Southern and given them a platform to purvey and monetize their anti-Muslim bigotry. Right. So in that way, yeah. you know, they were very central. When we were, you know, kind of doing this mapping, like literally just on a wall uh, at the very outset of this research, you know, we didn't, you know, rebel media slowly became more and more toward the center uh, as we started digging into mm. um, their place within this because they were that launch pad. 
for so many of the Islamophobia influencers, um, they've had, you know, shows that they have done with others that are featured when we, you know, we have a whole section on media uh, in the report. And, you know, they've been connected to many um, other person, media personalities that are known for, uh, you know, their anti-Muslim activism. So they provided that hub, um, you know, for these groups to be able to have this kind of platform. And certainly, you know, and, and they do monetize that, you know, certainly um, through those kinds of, you know, campaign uh, campaigns, but also through tactics like coming after CJPME, right? Because this yeah. is where they can get their funder, their, sorry, their um, followers their yeah. to, yeah, to start to um, donate. And so, uh, yeah, they have been very much the hub for a lot of where these ideologies come from. You know, Faith Goldie, until she was... Um, removed from from their roster you know after um charlottesville charlottesville and you know her reciting of the nazi creed and all of that um you know she has been propagating all kinds of videos for example uh i remember there's the one where she is trying to suggest or imply uh that there was a second muslim shooter at the quebec mosque um uh, you know, attack Masker, right, yeah. from Bissonnette, this sort of second shooter theory that she was trying to promote because initially the police had detained a Muslim man who had come forward as a witness, but they thought, right. of course, because of Islamophobia, well, you know, here is an Arab man, maybe he, he must be the suspect. And they just took that and ran with it, you know. And so those types of ideas are, you know, uh, when they start to filter into people's consciousness, they're reinforced by other tropes that we have about Muslim terrorists and so on. And so, you know, their ideas are fortifying those pre-existing ideologies, taking them to new to new um, levels. Um, you know, similarly, Lauren Southern was another one who, uh, you know, got her start there. And, uh, you know, so and many other personalities, including Ezra Levant, who have been very, very vocal in um you know, these sort of anti-Muslim campaigns. So having that sort of mothership, you know, from which these personalities could um, become, you know, uh, professionalized and become career professional Islamophobes are uh, really what Rebel has um, allowed to uh, and, and supported within Canada. Yeah, yeah. So you have these these hubs like Rebel Media that are... Um you know, sort of fomenting all this. And then you have other groups that you describe in the report as, quote unquote, the foot soldiers of the Islamic, Islamophobic white nationalism. Um, so they're not necessarily as present or as visible in society as something like rebel rebel news, uh, but they may, but they're the ones that may actually engage in, in violence and, and, and hate crimes. And, and of course, would be literally dangerous, physically dangerous. Uh, in the report, you talk about Pegida Canada, the Proud Boys, and other neo-Nazi groups. Um, should we be worried about the threats that these organizations pose? How 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 real is it? How how seriously should we should we take these threats? You know, well, I think when we take into account the two terror attacks against Muslim Canadians in this country, both in Quebec in 2017 and then in 2021 on June 6th in London, Ontario, where you know Pakistani Canadian Muslim family were mowed down by a truck. Uh, yeah. driven by a white nationalist. And of course, uh, you know, the Quebec mass shooter as well was also a white nationalist. Then we cannot um, afford to not take seriously the uh, very real threat of white nationalism, you know, in Canada. And, you know, this kind of ideologically motivated violence from the, these groups is definitely um, something that is of great concern. And, so, you know, when you have different groups and, you know, studies that have been done on uh, white nationalism in Canada, uh, Barbara Perry's work, for example, uh, you know, identified that there's somewhere around 300 white nationalist groups in Canada. Now they're of different, you know, sizes and stripes and different, you know, levels of influence. Some are very localized um, to particular regions or even particular cities. Some of them, because they have social media presence, have a wider birth and reach. Some of them are chapters of groups that extend across Canada, like Soldiers of Odin, for example. Um, you know, so they are of different sizes and, and different levels of influence and so on. Um, but they are the more likely ones to, I think, um, 
you know, foster uh, more direct action when we're looking at, you know, we look at the the fact that in Quebec a year before the attack on the mosque, there was a pig's head that was left in front of the door. And that was one of the white nationalist groups in Quebec that was responsible for that. Um, and so these are the groups that I think um, are now starting to be more closely monitored by security agencies, you know, uh, in Canada. And I think should be um, a site of concern because of, um, you know, the, the, the ideologically motivated uh, type of um, violence that may come from them. And, you know, what I think is significant, too, so we've we've um, isolated about in total, I think, 30 groups. We had about 15, uh, maybe half of those, the 15 or so that we profiled in the report. Then we had another, you know, dozen or so that are kind of on a watch list that we, um, you know, made reference to. But these are groups that you should, you know, we should be monitoring. Um, and what's significant, I think, in the report is that um, how these groups gather strength from ideological alignment with other groups and how this fortifies and amplifies their shared anti-Muslim messaging and creates like strategic alliances among them. So mm -hmm. one example is Soldiers of Odin, you know, arm in arm with the Jewish Defense League, providing security for an event um, for Sandra Solomon, who is an ex-Muslim. You know, so you have these rather unholy bedfellows coming together, you know, rather disparate groups that you'd be surprised to see in any way aligned. But they do align because of this shared anti-Muslim, um, you know, uh, uh, campaigns that they have um, been um, working together and creating alliances on. So that sort of Islamophobia is what, you know, kind of consolidates um, some of these groups who you wouldn't think would otherwise be um, working together. Yeah. Yeah, and it sort of strikes me as well that uh, you know uh, we were actually uh, in the in the mid 2010s. We were, I remember working with an intern at one point, sort of looking at sort of this discussion of Muslim terror because, of course, the 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 ideologues and the influencers and rebel media they're sort of talking about the threat of of Muslims or the threats of is what they call Islamo fascists, and yet when you actually would talk when you actually sort of dig in and talk to security agencies like and and they'd say their number their concern was was right-wing terror and yet the politicians had been influenced by this sort of right-wing discourse that oh the real the real danger is is are these islamofascists quote-unquote islamofascists but in fact in recent years, of course, you've mentioned a number of the attacks. It's actually, uh, obviously, the much bigger threat right now is this right-wing terror. And it's really, you know, but to get that discourse to change, it's taken years for people to sort of say, no, right-wing right -wing terror is something we need to take very, very seriously. So I think it's great that your report has has made, obviously, laid that out very clearly. And my question a moment ago was, was more rhetorical or more sort of academic what did your report find about this? But it's 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 crazy how long it took people to take this seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think um, for a long time, the pervasive threat from the perspective of security communities was this sort of, you know, Islamist radical. Um, and when you have, you know, former premiers like Stephen Harper saying that yeah. you know, um, Islamism, Islamicism is the greatest threat to national security, then it's not a surprise that that would be where the security communities would focus their attention on Muslims. At the same time, they were asleep at the wheel when it came to the way that far-right groups were gathering strength and momentum and actually themselves radicalizing and, you know, mm -hmm. becoming more violent. Exactly, exactly. Well, maybe I can shift a bit because uh, I want to ask about a different kind of uh, group, uh, which is what you call sort of the soft power behind Islamophobia, which you define as pro-Israel fringe right groups. Uh, and these groups, I guess, could identify as Jewish or evangelical Christian, um, but they purvey anti-Muslim views as part of their efforts to promote Israel and vilify Palestinians. I mean, even that rebel media in terms of that conversation, I remember a few years ago when they had a delegation go to Israel uh, with Faith Goldie and Gavin McGinnis and these folks uh, and talking about bringing a crusade in Bethlehem and that kind of thing. So very much it seems like Israel is already always part of the conversation somehow. 
Uh, so can you say a little bit about how Muslims are viewed by these groups? And so, yeah, and yeah, what what are some of the key actors? Yeah, and actually, we did talk about in the report that very trip that the rebel made to to Israel with uh, with Bayeth Goldie and Gavin McGinnis, who was the founder of the Proud Boys. Um, and so, yeah, you're absolutely right. These groups um, that we've identified as the pro-Israel fringe right groups are very uh, key act, very much key actors within the Islamophobia industry. Um, and so where we had sort of the white nationalist groups, as we call them, the foot soldiers, we call them these groups, the soft power groups, um, because they leverage influence in a different way. Like they're not, you know, with on the streets with pop-up demonstrations and wearing Doc Martens and waving flags, but they are actually um, very professional groups, uh, professionals uh, that are involved in them and are able to leverage a specific sphere of influence and bring a certain legitimacy to the kinds of ideologies that they are purveying that are uh, actually at the same time demonizing uh, Muslims and particularly centering their um, efforts around um, Israel and Palestine and, you know, the promotion of the idea that Muslims are, uh, Muslim charities and organizations are just a front, you know, for Hamas. And that's a very big narrative that many of these groups are promoting along with ideas uh, about um, creeping Sharia and so on. So this really kind of, you know, trying to create moral panics um, around Muslims in Canada is also part of a larger uh, geopolitical, you know, uh, kind of um, uh, agenda that they have. And so we looked at groups like the JDL and, and B'nai B'rith, um, uh, Charles McVetty, you know, on the, the sort of Christian evangelical side, groups like um, newer groups like Canadians for the Rule of Law, for example. So many of these groups have been sort of pop-ups that have, um, you know, you have sort of a longer legacy groups like the Jewish Defense League and then B'nai B'rith, but then you have a lot of these newer groups that are coming up. Some of them popped up just around Motion 103, uh, the time around that, and were very much focused, had a very singular focus on that. Others have then sort of become offshoots, if you will, um, that take up that agenda, but are adding, you know, more layers to the kinds of rhetoric that they are purveying and sort of deepening those kinds of um, uh, focus against uh, Muslims in Canada as pervasive sort of threats. And so um, these groups, the soft power groups, uh, are the major purveyors of the Islamist boogeyman conspiracies, the Trojan horse conspiracy and creeping Sharia. And they are actively organizing with other sectors of the Islamophobia uh, industries I've mentioned against the Muslim organizations and charities and um, and against Motion 103. Those have been sort of the raison d'etre of a lot of these um, groups, uh, always with an agenda to promote campaigns such as the lawfare. Um, campaigns in Canada to actually begin to try and legally go after groups that they are uh, deeming as, uh, you know, problematic to their own ideologies and agendas. Um, so because they are a group that involves a lot more, um, you know, sort of professionals, they're able to to leverage different spheres of influence. And they're using very specific language to um camouflage their anti-Muslim bigotry behind rhetoric like championing the rule of law, upholding Judeo-Christian um, democracy and values, uh, all of which they think Muslims are completely antithetical to and are threatening to. And so then you also have this notion of a kind of civilizational danger that the Muslim Trojan horse will usher into Canada. Uh, and so those are some of the ways in which um, these groups are, um, you know, promoting these uh, Islamophobic ideologies. And, you know, and they're active in working with groups like Muslim dissidents, for example, um, in terms of aligning some of their um, strategic goals and their campaigns. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense to me that that these narratives would be part of sort of pro, some pro-Israel advocacy in the sense that if you're tr one of the ways that Palestinians are vilified is through these Muslim tropes that, you know, they're dangerous. You can't give them political power. Mm -hmm. uh, and it makes sense that that could be sold as part of a package idea that, uh, you know, if, if they're danger, if Muslims are dangerous there, they'd also be dangerous here. Uh, and they can't have political power here either. So it's, it definitely sort of makes sense, but it's, it's really disturbing. And I, and I think 
it's often sort of taken for granted or like I feel like it's less likely to be called out sometimes when it's in this context of of political debate. Uh, but but another uh, key section that I did want to get to uh, deals also with Muslim dissidents or ex ex Muslim individuals who nonetheless perpetuate harmful ideas about the Muslim community. Um, some of them have even promoted bans on the hijab or niqab, and some of these individuals have done so in major uh, newspapers in Canada and are publishing columns sort of denying that Islamophobia exists. Uh, I've seen some of these individuals sort of uh, in partnership with Israeli diplomats in Canada. Uh, I, you say that these in- individuals like these, they play a key role as insiders. Uh, can you say a little bit about that and how they may give cover to anti-Muslim views? Yeah, so, you know, <clears throat> the Islamophobia industry draws heavily on the views and writing of these confrontational voices of self-proclaimed Muslim dissidents, reformers, ex-Muslims, and they become lauded as the authoritative interlocutors on Islam and Muslims. Um, and they are actually reinforcing many of the same tropes and, you know, kind of conspiracy theories that we've been talking about Um so far. And that's what I think can be a little bit um, surprising for people to see that there is actually people who, you know, position themselves as Muslims who are actually part of this um, industry. Um, and, and they have their counterparts south of the border as well, actually. So, um, but, you know, these individuals become bolstered by this insider status that, you know, they are Muslim so that they can therefore have some sort of an inside view. And then when they are then talking about Muslims as um, potential Islamist boogeyman and, and you know, connections to the Muslim Brotherhood or all these conspiracy theories, well, then they must know because they're on the inside. So, um, you know, and in that way, they're acting as instigators and propagators of anti-Islam, uh, anti-Muslim narratives as well as validating and authorizing the circulation of these kinds of tropes. So, you know, if they're saying it, it adds that authoritative seal of somebody who, you know, is an insider and therefore they should know. And, you know, so again, that may be counterintuitive to a lot of people that someone claiming a Muslim identity would produce and purvey the same kind of anti-Muslim rhetoric as other, you know, Islamophobic hate groups. But Nonetheless, these players occupy a central role in the Islamophobia industry, you know, producing and propping up its ideologies and providing validation to the racist logics behind these bigotries. Right. So, you know, and I'm I'm very careful about how I'm using the term Muslim dissident in this study to refer to individuals whose, you know, discourse serves as a justification for intellectual Islamophobia, you know, in different forums and across different kinds of social networks. And and so. you know, and some of them have referred to themselves as this. Some of them refer to themselves as refuseniks or Muslim reformers or so on. Um, and many of them are ex-Muslims who are also, um, you know, there to deliver a wake up call to other Muslims. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways that they, um, you know, they kind of uh, contribute to the Islamophobic industry by either, you know, openly inciting Islamophobic fears and moral panic and re- reinforcing the idea that equates Islam with terrorism and violence, you know, depicting mosques as nefarious sites of indoctrination and radicalization. So at the same time, when I mentioned Faith Goldie was talking about the, you know, the the second shooter theory at the Quebec mosque attack, it was actually echoing Tariq Fatah, who is one of the Muslim dissidents who offered mm-hmm. the same kind of, um, you know, alternative theory about that particular attack. Um, And so, you know, they are also the purveyors of this idea of, you know, um, fear of radicalization of Muslims and that Muslim, uh, they're also promoting the idea that Canadian Muslim organizations have ties to wider jihadist networks. Um, But they're also able, for example, ex-Muslims will share their personal narratives of oppression and liberation from the shackles of Islam as kind of firsthand evidence of the backwardness of of Islam and its incompatibility with Western values and um, civilization, for example. And, um, you know, and that's not to say that people um, don't have negative experiences mm-hmm. with, uh, with you know, Islam or with religion or with religious regimes in other countries. And that is valid and that is um, of concern. 
But what we're seeing here is, is something that is actually, you know, sensationalizing that and capitalizing on that in a particular kind of way and sort of trafficking, you know, in Islamophobia, as yeah. I mentioned, is profitable, right? And and this kind of uh, anti-Muslim, uh, you know, rhetoric becomes monetized and commodified and, and benefits its purveyors, right? So Muslim yeah. dissidents and ex-Muslims are the beneficiaries of this notoriety and even donor support from the Islamophobia industry. Some of them have connections to Gatestone or to Middle East Forum, for example. And they've built careers investing in these roles. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, that's, uh, you know, you come across these individuals once in a while. And uh, and it's not to say that they haven't had difficult or painful experiences in, as part of their faith tradition. But that doesn't mean it's, you know, it's the common experience or that they are representative necessarily, but they are, as you say, trafficked or or given this huge platform. Uh, but you could find literally any, you know, you could you could go to any religion and find people that are disaffected or or have a grievance or or have had terrible experiences. And, and if you gave them a similarly a platform, uh, it would be a similar sort of thing. So, yeah, it's 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 really good to mention that. Yeah, Michael. Yeah. And just it's just so insidious. Like I was reminded as we were talking of uh, Tarek Fateh's column, uh, like uh, over a year ago in the Toronto Sun, where it was about how Islamophobia doesn't exist, which is bad mm -hmm. enough. But then he goes on to say, but if it did exist, it's because there's always Islamophobia wherever there's Muslims. And it's because of the things that Muslims are doing. So he's blaming it on Muslims. And this was, I think, around the time of the of the London terrorist attack, even possibly after, uh, yes, af like shortly after. So basically, saying that this attack was was the fault of Muslims in the community, and I just can't think of anything worse than that kind of argument. But that's uh, that's the Toronto Sun for you, I guess. Well, you know, and and that was uh, actually the sentiment that came out in a public opinion poll in Canada. Um, which said that discrimination against Muslims was primarily their fault. I think there was, you wow. know, and th that we have actually in, in the report, we have uh, distilled the polls, public opinion polls in Canada for over the last 20 years. And so, you know, kind of the introduction to the report is trying to really look at that broader ecosystem, uh, you know, where Islamophobia networks begin to thrive. And so, you know, as much as we are talking about you know, some fringe groups, some sort of far right echo chambers and special interest groups and so on. Uh, I think that when you start to look at the public opinion polls in Canada that are really uh, also very problematic in terms of how they are viewing Muslims and Islam in Canada, for example, you know, in far less favorable, favorable ways than other religious groups or really doing the same victim blaming, um, then, you know, you get a sense of how that also bolsters the kind of ideologies that are being spread by, you know, these other groups. And yeah, it may be surprising for Muslims to hear actually people who will identify as Muslim saying that, you know, that the, oh, well, no, Islamophobia isn't real. Rahil Raza has said similar things. Uh, whenever there are, you know, these federal parliamentary hearings on things like Motion 103, for example, um, a lot of these, um, you know, people that we talk about as the Muslim dissidents here, uh, Tarek Fattah, Rahil Raza, Tahar Gore, and others will actually, you know, also give deputations there. And in the minority report that came out um, by the conservatives on Motion 103, a lot of these kinds of voices were echoed in that report. So you can see even there where they were used to uh, sort of invalidate the process through which, you know, Canada was trying to grapple with Islamophobia as a real problem. So they're always trying to diminish it, you know, blame the victims um, and uh, continue to try and insert their ideas that, well, you know, don't buy into this because actually they are, you know, a Trojan horse, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And this is, you know, um, a distraction from that. Right, right. And and somehow this this sort of isolated voice should, should somehow count, <laughs> contradict organizations that represent hundreds of islamic centers across the country and so on so right yeah they're they're given that same credence that yeah i i i looked at that the list of witnesses uh for that uh parliamentary uh study and uh, yeah it's 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 crazy the types of people that are given a platform uh, uh for on, on those issues and and while many others who who speak very authoritatively for muslim canadians are not given a place at the table mm -hmm. 
Um, so I guess we want to sort of think about wrapping up this discussion a little bit in terms of, you know, are there things that we can do? I mean, obviously it's, you've, you've described something which is, which can feel a little bit overwhelming in terms of the, the funding that's going on in the networks and the, and the, the way these things are sort of all connected together. And, uh, are there ways, uh, what would you recommend in ways that we can sort of challenge this Islamophobia industry? And are there specific areas or weak points that we should be focusing on? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. And you'll notice in this very lengthy report that we did not include recommendations. Um, and, you know, honestly, that was because about a year ago, after the London terror attack, there were there was a summit, as you know, a federal summit that was held on Islamophobia in Canada. And at that time, uh, you know, hundreds of Muslim Canadians, individuals and organizations put out literally hundreds of recommendations to the government. And so we didn't really want to, um, you know, just be redundant and, and uh, you know, just bring out all of those same kinds of recommendations. I think those have been made. They need to be acted upon. I think this is um, what is important. I would say, you know, specific to this study, I think there there is a need to focus on the kind of disinformation campaigns and purveyors that are out there. And it is quite ubiquitous. You know, even when I was trying to fact check information, particularly, you know, one of the strategies that's used is uh, weaponizing the Quran, where a lot of these groups will take Quranic verses and things out of context and use them to promote, you know, claims that Islam, you know, is violent or is, uh, you know, uh, is anti-Christian or anti-Jewish you know, Jewish or something. And so, you know, when I was looking at some of these and I was trying to find, um, you know, sources, uh, valid and reputable sources from, you know, uh, sort of Islamic sites that, um, you know, I could count on for that information, you're immediately directed towards um, other sites like Answering Islam, which is one of these Islamophobic sites. So your first hits are actually channeling you to the disinformation sites if you're actually just looking up, you know, specific Quranic verse. And so in the study, we actually I actually found some research that that backed that up to say that a lot of these algorithms are being kind of hijacked and people are directed to sites of um, fake news and, and false information. So that's a real problem. Um, it's what I encountered, you know, in doing this study. So um, I think there has to be some efforts to address that. And I think also a kind of critical media literacy where, you know, people are able to discern, uh, you know, uh, fact from from fiction and, and fake news. Fake news is a big way in which a lot of these ideas are spread and are consumed and are, you know, taken up by people as kind of common sense knowledge because they don't have counter knowledge. And so I think that's um, important. Obviously, having, you know, uh, more robust laws around, um, you know, online hate and things like that. That's where a lot of these groups germinate. That's where they they incubate and spread their ideas. Um, but I think it's important that, uh, you know, a lot of the groups that we've uh, focused on here, I mean, aside from sort of the white nationalist type groups, but a lot of the soft power groups are actually, you know, charities, registered charities, and they are purveying. Um, anti-Muslim racism. And I think that there should be something there to investigate um, how they maintain a charitable status while doing this. Um, so I think that there's a lot to there's it's, there's a lot to take on board. There's a lot to distill. And um, it requires a lot of, of focus. I think, you know, the challenge of dealing uh, with Islamophobia needs to happen at many levels, whether it's through education, whether it's through, you know, a whole of government approach. Uh, but the, you know, the government has been slow in acting. It took uh, four years to have it after the, um, London terror attack to have the National Day of, uh, Remembrance on Islamophobia. I know, uh, CJPME had an excellent campaign to bring that in. And so finally we have that in this sort of day of action on January 29th, but it took four years after a lot of sort of national amnesia around that issue. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about the minority report and that actual report that came out of the uh, parliamentary hearings on Motion 103, which was galvanized by, you know, uh, Islamophobia and the Quebec uh, attacks and, and became a time to begin to look at these issues. And yet, while Islamophobia was a catalyst, it became, you know, out of the 30 or so recommendations in that report, there were only three that addressed Islamophobia. So I, find I, I, I know. 
I know it was ridiculous. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's it, it really was, and it's sort of something that's always been you know pushed to the side, despite the fact of you know the deadly nature of Islamophobic violence in this country. So, uh, you know, I think that there, you know, this needs to be taken seriously. Recently, the Ontario Anti-Racism Directorate, which was kind of, you know, disbanded, uh, you know, a few few years ago when the Ford government took over, and I don't know where it eventually got moved, but I was on a, a subcommittee for Islamophobia there, and, and that committee got, you know, dismantled. Uh, I guess they're trying to now, uh, you know, they convened a meeting of, you know, Muslim community members and, uh, you know, asking the same questions over and over that the community gets asked. What do we do about Islamophobia? It's like, you know, we were trying to tackle this issue when you dismantled the committees three years ago. And, mm. uh, you know, that's basically all I stuck around to say. And I, I just left because I'm so tired of, you know, these sorts of uh, check off the box exercises to engage the Muslim community into thinking that something tangible is going to happen, but it's really just more or less having people talk under a false sense of inclusion and that something, you know, is going to come out of this effort. So I think what what needs to happen is, is um, you know, kind of complex. And if there is a, con- a serious consideration and a sincere consideration of this, um, you know, I would be happy to see uh, or be part of that conversation. But I don't want to be just contributing to another laundry list of issues that no one is going to consider. Yeah, 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 your, your comment. I mean, on the one hand, you've pointed us in a few directions that we need to be need to be focusing on. On the other hand, you know, you've made clear that obviously there are already a lot of recommendations out there uh, that have not been acted on or or institutions that were set up to address these things, which were then were then dismantled. Um, I guess one thing that I take away is that this is an entire industry and you don't you don't sort of wipe away an entire industry in, in one in one day. It's going to take a concerted effort over time to sort of address address the problem at all these different levels, whether it be, as you say, you know, looking at the charitable status of certain charities that are part of it, uh, whether it be better education, whether it be putting institutions, governmental institutions uh, together that can address this. So there's there's a lot to think about here, but it is disappointing that more hasn't been done. Uh, more progress hasn't been made since this has become so apparent. Like you you sort of mentioned the, the 2017 uh, uh, Quebec City attack. Uh, you know, that was really, I think, where things really, in my mind, that's where people sort of started taking this really seriously or more seriously, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even despite that, we're almost six, six, six years out and just so little mm-hmm. has happened since then. That's right. And, you know, I think what this report also shows is that, you know, there is a very formidable uh, industry purveying uh, Islamophobia that does have deep pockets. Yeah. Um, even though we can't say exactly how much that is reaching Canada, we do know of some of these kinds of connections with the big donors um, south of the border. So, you know, it does give us pause and and some consideration of what, um, you know, what is being supported here. Uh, and on the other side, we don't really have the same resources, right, to be able to uh, address this. And so that disparity is something that needs to be leveled out by actually, you know, providing more funding, you know, to groups and NGOs and organizations that can uh, begin to challenge some of these, um, you know, propaganda campaigns and so on and look at some, you know, be instrumental in some of the tangible kinds of recommendations that need to be um, enacted in order to address this. Mm. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Jasmine, for joining us today and for telling us about your fantastic report. Uh, We'll put a link to it in the show notes uh, so that everyone can easily find it. I hope that more people uh, read it and start talking about it. I think it provides a tremendous resource for making sense of all of these different uh, actors and and discourses within uh, the industry. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, it, it's it, it's an impressive. I, I really encourage our listeners to take a look. It is packed full of information. It is <laughs> there's not a lot of fluff in there. <laughs> Just go straight to it. Links and so on. So hats off to you and the team and uh, and your I guess your partner, the uh, Islamophobia Studies Center at the University of California Berkeley. Uh, so please pass our thanks to them and let's hope that uh, 
that this work and this report has an impact and, and instigates the type of change that we would like to see. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about it. I really appreciate it. If you're a listener and you've enjoyed our podcast today, please subscribe to our channel. We're on all the major audio podcast platforms. If you can, please leave a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find our program and learn about the issues. This podcast is a project of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, CJPME, and seeks to advance its mission to empower Canadians of all backgrounds to promote justice, development, and peace in the Middle East. If you like this podcast, you may also like our other podcast called All Things Palestinian Canadian, hosted by Noor Watad. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions about our podcast or topics, please feel free to email us at info at cjpme.org. Thanks to all our supporters who helped make this podcast possible. Thanks to Madeline Moffitt, our podcast engineer and consultant. That's it for now. We look forward to having you all with us on our next podcast. Take care. See you all again soon.